0: for your word we do thank you for the life it gives through the sacrifice of your son and the truth about him lord we thank you for the privilege to be able to have your word and be able to uh, hear it proclaimed and to read it and study it and lord we need it for every part of our lives not just the gospel message but also to just the encouragement that we need to to live day to day i I know there are many in this body that are going through great difficulties. I also pray, too, Lord, I'm just thinking about as the school year closes out and the many kids we have from our church and the various schools in our community here, that, God, you would use them to be a testimony, or especially those in our high schools, God, where the the light is so dim. I pray, God, that you would um, use our children as a means to proclaim your good news. We thank you, God, for all that you've given, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today is our last, the last day in our short series here we've been doing on giving, so Lord willing, next week we'll be back in the letter of Ephesians and have to reacquaint ourselves with that little letter. Um, and uh, during this series, I've looked at a number of polls, a <clears throat> number of surveys and studies that have been done on giving and I know there are some differences in terms of the the various numbers reported in these studies. They all essentially tell the same story. That is that people are giving less. Even before the economic downturn, there were trends in the direction of people giving less to the Lord. One 2001 study showed that while income had increased by about 25% in the last 30 years, over that same period of time, giving had dropped by over 30%. A 2005 survey by the Barner Group showed that one in four members of evangelical churches, only one in four actually gave at least 10% of their income. Since 2008, 30% of all churchgoers have reduced their giving, and one in four of those have stopped giving altogether. In addition to that, those giving more than 10% or more dropped by over 40% in the last five years. It just seems that uh, as times get more difficult, we tend to hold on to our money. And I I wonder about us. If we had a survey done here at Calvary, what would things look like? Now, don't worry. Uh, There's not going to be people waiting to do an exit poll when you leave this morning. We're not going to be looking up your giving records and and all of that. But again, the main goal of this series has not been to uh, manipulate or pressure you to give more to the church. That's not why the elders have wanted me to do this series. Sorry about that, Don. Um, the goal is that we'd be more generous people. That's why we're talking about this. The goal is that we would be moved to trust in God more. The goal is that we would be made more dependent on Him rather than things. And giving has a way of helping us do that. The goal of this has been to inspire us to meet the needs, the many needs of those around us. From the very simple ones to the, to the very difficult It's also been a goal to provide for the needs of the local church. There are needs here at Calvary. And yes, we we would love to see more participation in giving. And as we've been going through these series, uh, some of the key questions that have been asked are, do I have a generous heart? Do you rely more on money than on him? Are you using what you have not only to care for your needs, but also for the needs of others? Are you investing money in God's kingdom or yours? Just what does God-honoring giving look like? What is biblical giving? What is the picture of that? And that's the question we're going to look to this morning as we go back to 2 Corinthians. We'll be reading from the same chapter that uh, Steve read from a little earlier. So if you could be turning there in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 9. Last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 8 and looked at the motivation of, To give from the first nine verses of that chapter this week, we're going to focus our attention on the heart or the character of biblical giving from 2nd Corinthians 9. We'll see in these verses the call to give in verses one through five. The way to give in verses six and seven, the strength to give in verses eight through eleven, and finally the reason to give in the last four verses of this chapter. Let me start in verse one. We'll look at the call to give again Paul said therefore it is superfluous for me to write to you again about this ministry to the saints for i know your readiness of which i boast about you to the macedonians namely that achaea that's the region where corinth is achaea has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them but i've sent the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case so that as i was saying you may be prepared otherwise if any macedonians come with me and find you unprepared We, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that it would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now, we do have a chapter break here between 824 and 9-1, but there really shouldn't be. Actually, these two chapters... Go together. They all are focused around the same theme. They all have at their heart Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians to give. We have here this burden that Paul expresses for Jerusalem. He had a burden for those in need there. Jerusalem had gone through many trials, much persecution. They had actually a famine in the region. There were many needs of the saints there. In fact, Acts 11.29 tells us about when Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church in Antioch to take an offering back to the saints in Jerusalem. And it seems as you follow Paul through Acts and through his letters, he brings this up a lot. He had a real heart for the believers there. And he often would tell the churches that he was serving, Hey, set some money aside. I want to bring it back to our fellow brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. We see that in Romans 15, Acts 24, and in 1 Corinthians. Paul brought up this need in Jerusalem to the Corinthians back in 1 Corinthians 16, where he said in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So back in 1 Corinthians 16, he tells them of the need in Jerusalem and that he would send somebody if they could be setting money aside consistently, he would send someone to bring that those funds and those helps to saints in Jerusalem. And as we see here in Second Corinthians eight and nine, they actually the Corinthians were eager to do this. Paul mentioned several times their readiness, their eagerness to give. But the plan got Derailed. Some false teachers came in to Corinth and they made it a mission to discredit Paul to the Corinthians. They claim that Paul's not an apostle. He's a charlatan. He's just trying to take your money. He doesn't care about you. And so as a result, the next time Paul visited Corinth, he was painfully rejected. He was despised, rebuffed, ignored, disrespected. And as a result, this whole matter of giving to Jerusalem was set on the wayside. Well, Paul then sent them a strong letter after that visit, a letter of rebuke. And it wasn't a thing about he just wanted to be seen as exalted. The importance was the ministry, the message that he brought. If he's discredited, the gospel's discredited. And so he sent them a letter of rebuke. And and Titus, who had been in Corinth, catches up to Paul when he was in Macedonia. And he tells Paul, Paul, your letter hit the mark. These Corinthians are, are humbled by it. They are repentant. That was very encouraging to Paul, and so Paul wanted to go back and visit them. But before he did that, he wrote a letter, the letter we have, the 2nd Corinthians. And he wrote this letter, and he gave it to Titus and a few other brothers to take on ahead of Paul and give to the Corinthians before Paul arrived. In this letter, Paul wanted to make sure they understood his ministry, that they understood his credentials as an apostle, so that they would fully embrace his message. And also in this letter, he comes back to this issue of giving the promise, the commitment they had made to give to those in Jerusalem. And these two chapters, chapters eight and nine, are focused on that, where Paul wants to bring back to their memories to remind them of that commitment to the poor. We learned last week, again, in those first nine verses, Paul introduced the topic by presenting the example of the Macedonians. Remember, they were these eager and, and joyful and abundant givers. They were begging Paul to participate and help in any way that they can. And then Paul moved to that wonderful example of Christ in verse 9, who though he was rich, became poor for your sakes, so that we who were poor might become rich. After those two examples, Paul then urges them in verses 10 through 15, again saying, fulfill your commitment to give. I know you had the desire, I know you had the readiness, I know you wanted to do it, so now act upon that. And so in verses 16 through 24 of chapter 8, Paul lays out this plan where he's going to send Titus and a couple of other brothers ahead of Paul to go to Corinth to make sure things are in order and a collection can be made and then sent on to Jerusalem. Look at 823, where Paul commends these men, saying this. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, two brothers he was sending, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. And then from 824, he rolls right in to nine one again they're interconnected where he says it's superfluous it's redundant it's repetitive of me to write to you about this ministry to the saints he's saying yes i know i keep bringing it up it's redundant but because i know your readiness i know your eagerness i know your desire to serve in this way corinthians he's saying i know that you want to do this in fact he tells them by the way you know when i told the macedonians here about uh, the fact you were involved in wanting to set money aside to give to those in Jerusalem. They were excited about your zeal. They want to participate too. They said, count us in, Paul. And so Paul then is encouraging the Corinthians here in these first five verses to, to make sure to fulfill that commitment, that desire that you had. Again, back in 8.7, he asked them to do that. In 8.10, 8.11, 8.24, here again in chapter 9. He keeps coming back to it over and over. And the question is, why? Why are you doing that, Paul? If, if the Corinthians are excited about this, why do you keep bringing it up? Are you trying to pressure them? Trying to manipulate them into giving? And why are you sending Titus ahead to collect it? Don't you trust us? Well, we see one reason in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, so that my boasting about you would not be rendered void. You see, at Paul's next visit, he was going to bring some Macedonians with him. And now what would this look like if Paul were sharing about the the Corinthians and how they were setting money aside for those in Jerusalem and Paul shows up with these Macedonians who had been inspired by the Corinthians and there's no money? That would look bad for the Corinthians. And it would look bad for Paul and his his trust in them. And so he desired to send Titus on ahead. Now again, Paul was confident in their desire to give, but he also knows full well that desire doesn't always translate to action, right? And remember, these Corinthians were not a very mature bunch. That whole letter to, in 1 Corinthians uh, pointed out the fact they were a very immature group of believers. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3.1, he said, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not, spiritual, not solid food, for you were not able yet to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. And I think because of their spiritual immaturity, that's why Paul laid out a structured plan in 1 Corinthians 16. When he said, hey, guys, set money aside every week so that when those show up to collect that money, they, they show up and you're not scrambling to get it. I think Paul here, he does appreciate their eagerness. He just wants to make sure that that eagerness does not carry itself out in action. So he sends Titus ahead as a means of accountability, as a reminder and I went through all of this, not just uh, the history lesson, so you know what's going on in Paul's day with the Macedonians and the Corinthians. But there's some important lessons here for us. I'm sure that we all have a desire to give for the needs in the body, for the needs of one another. But for some of us, maybe we lack a little bit of discipline in that area. Maybe at times we forget To give, Or other times we we don't have a budget that we're sticking to. Or we haven't really put anything aside in our budget. Or maybe we don't have a giving plan at all. Perhaps your giving is inconsistent or haphazard. For some of us, maybe it's non-existent. My question to you, my encouragement, do you have a giving plan? Whatever that is, do you have a, a structure, a manner in which you've thought out ahead of time? This is how I want to give to the Lord and to those in need. You should consider that, whether it's a weekly thing like Paul suggested in 1 Corinthians 16 or or monthly or or whatever it is. And if if you have trouble doing this, if you lack consistency, if you don't have a plan, that's one reason we have small groups. Let somebody else know so that they can be praying for you, helping you and help some accountability there with that. Don't be eager and then lack the discipline to bring that eagerness to fruition. We see another reason for Paul's redundancy here at the end of verse 5, where he says he's sending Titus to arrange the collection of the funds of the gift so that it would be ready as a blessing and not as literally as covetousness. He's saying, you know, another reason I'm bringing this up and I'm sending Titus to you straight away is because I, I don't want greed to creep in. He said, I know that I know the temptation I know that something might come in and prevent you from fulfilling what I know you're eager to do, that, that money you want to set aside and possessions and, and things to care for those in Jerusalem. And I know there may be a temptation to have second thoughts about that. Maybe some things come up in, in your life, he says, you know, and the idea that, that they might wane in their commitment, that they might go back on their desire. We talked about this before. What's the number one enemy of generosity? Greed, right? And again, when i we talk about greed, when I say greed, don't just think of the miserly Scrooge who you know is hugging his money and loving it and thinking about it and dreaming about it. That's not the only form where greed is manifested. Greed's also seen when you depend on money more than God, when you look to it first to solve your problems or to bring happiness, when there's great anxiety if you don't have enough of it, when making money or having money is. More of a source of contentment than Jesus is. Remember again Hebrews thirteen five, where the Lord said, "Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have." For He Himself has said, "I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you." What Paul says at the end here, verse five and Second Corinthians nine, dovetails right into verses six and seven, and describing the manner in which God desires us to give. These two verses here in verses six and seven really, really are are in a nutshell, the heart of biblical God honoring giving. It brings us to our second point. That is the way to give. Look back again at verse six. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. Did you catch the contrast there? And in the end of verse 5, Paul says, The way not to give is with covetousness, with a grudging attitude, under compulsion, sparingly. And he says, The way to give is with eagerness, with joy, voluntarily, bountifully, purposefully. These are all heart attitudes. Again, reminding us that giving is not a duty, not an obligation. But it's to be done with eagerness. And joy. You know, if you think about it, this is no different than anything else in the Christian life, is it? It's not like Paul is singling out here giving. Okay, and in giving, I want you to be happy and cheerful. Everything else you're supposed to do, just, just do it. I don't care the attitude, just do it. Is that the idea? No, everything in the Christian life, all obedience given to Christ should be done in joy, should be done cheerfully and eagerly, especially in giving. God loves A cheerful giver. God has a special affection for those who sacrifice in that way. See, our service to God is always to be out of love for God. It's always to be that. Our care for one another is to be out of love for one another. God's not just interested in that outward action, especially if it's devoid of an inward motivation to honor Christ. It's been said, one man may give with his hand, but pull it back with his looks. Very insightful. That's not the giving God's interested in. Rather, God wants to see giving in us that is voluntary, that is generous, that is joyful. You know, it's interesting. If we compare these two verses and how Paul describes the character of a godly giving, a biblical giving, it it really was seen in the Macedonians' example back early in chapter 8 when Paul was talking about them. Remember, he said of them in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their generosity. He said, For I testify that according their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Those same qualities there. this, This desire, this passion, this joy, this eagerness, this sacrifice by choice to care for the needs of others. Paul describes here in verses 6 and 7 of 2 Corinthians 9, essentially a generosity, a voluntary and cheerful giving. And verse 6 contains that well-known proverb, uh, so he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And every time I read this verse or think about it, I have fond memories of it because I still remember when I was a, a younger guy and, and my dad had read from this text uh, after dinner one night and he asked me to pray. Now, when he did that, you know, he didn't realize I didn't have a clue what that verse meant. And so as we're sitting there praying, I said, Lord, Lord, help us to sow sparingly. God, may we be very sparing, you know. And, and my parents did exactly what you're doing. They started laughing. I wasn't even done with my prayer. Well, hopefully I, I get what it means now. Um uh, <laughs> but just thinking about it, you know now in the greek this verse literally reads this the one sowing sparingly sparingly also he reaps the one who is sowing with blessing with blessing also he shall reap this structure really draws attention to the attitude whether it's a sparing a miserly sowing versus a bountiful one that is intended to bring a blessing the the meaning of the proverb on its surface is Plain, right? If you have a person out sowing seed and they just throw a little bit out, what should be expected from their harvest? Not much, right? But the one who's liberal and spreading out his seed, the opportunity for an abundant harvest is there. The meaning of the proverb is plain in regards to giving, right? You give in a miserly manner, then don't expect to find much joy or satisfaction or blessing from that. But If your giving is to be a blessing, it is abundant and bountiful without constraint, then you'll reap the same in your life. Generosity to others yields generosity from others. So let me ask you this. Thinking about that picture we saw earlier, in fact, it's still there on the screen, is that what your heart looks like? What is the harvest of your own heart? Is there a vast wheat field? Is there an abundant harvest? Full of wheat as far as the eye can see? Or if we were to look at your wheat field, will we see just a few strands of wheat? More weeds and rocks than anything else? Are you quick to give? Are you open-handed with your possessions? Would others describe you as a generous person? Again, I'm not talking about amount, right? We're talking about the, the attitude and the sacrifice. The widow's mite was very small indeed but it was a bountiful offering. One of the most generous people I know is is my own dad. I spoke of him earlier. You know, I don't know how many times growing up I would see he would offer to help others and give out loans, which ended up usually being gifts. Great testimony, encouragement to me is a wonderful picture of generosity, which I'm grateful to God for. And it made me think today as I was reflecting on my dad, what kind of legacy am I leaving for my kids in this area? How about you? What legacy are you leaving in this area of generosity for those in your family? You know, to be generous does mean sacrifice. So Paul reminds us that a bountiful giver is one that will be blessed with bountifully. Proverbs 22, nine says, He who is generous will be blessed. Now, does that mean God is promising to shower us with cash when we give? Should we picture the fact when we offer that if pretty soon we're going to be like in those game shows where a person's standing in a, in a barrel and all this money is pouring out on top of them and they're grabbing all they can? Is that what Paul's talking about here? We can expect a boatload of cash anytime soon. It's coming. Well, it doesn't exclude the fact that God may bless us financially, but is that the best blessing you think God can give? Is that really what brings the most joy and contentment? I mean, think about it. In verse 5, he just talked about that, that their offering would be an abundant, bountiful offering, not as covetous, not affected by coveting. So would Paul end verse 5 in that way to warn them about coveting and then turn right around in verse 6 and say, Give lots of money so you'll get lots of money. We'll come back to that in a minute. In addition to giving generously, Paul notes here in verse 7, we are to give voluntarily. He said there, let each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Macedonians, it says of them that they gave of their own accord. It's this idea that, that giving is a matter that must be decided upon by the individual, that no one is to tell you what you have to give. No one is to coerce you into giving. Because Paul says we must not give grudgingly. It's a word that has the idea of grief or sorrow. That we're not to give something and go, man, I wish I didn't give that. Ah, I shouldn't have done that. Or what a bummer. (laughs) Paul says, no, you're not to give in that way. And you're not to give under compulsion. That's the idea of being under duress or stress or pressure. Paul says there that we're not to give under compulsion. Any pastor or any ministry leader or, or anyone who manipulates or pressures or continually asks for money. They're going against the very principle of this passage. To let someone know of a need is fine and important, but to go beyond that isn't right. Now, in considering this whole matter of, of uh, the idea of voluntary giving, uh, this whole matter of tithing often comes up. You know, a tithe is just a technical term. It means a tenth. It's this idea that refers to giving 10% of your income, and uh, some people believe that that is a requirement. And others uh, say, well, doesn't that contradict with the idea of giving voluntarily? Aren't we then setting ourselves under a compulsion? If there's a certain percentage we have to give, is tithing required? Well, the first tithe we see in the Bible actually uh, was given by Abraham to Melchizedek back in Genesis 14. After Abraham had defeated the kings that had taken Lot, uh, his nephew captive, and he had attained the spoils and possessions of that battle, he met up with Melchizedek, a king of Salem, who was also a high priest of the Lord, and he gave him a tenth. Now, he wasn't required to do that. No one asked him or told him to do that, but he wanted to freely offer in thanksgiving and gratitude towards the Lord. We see later in the Old Testament that tithing became a uh, something that was required under the Mosaic law. Leviticus 27 describes how tithes were to be set aside of their produce and their livestock, to give to the Lord. Numbers 18, a tithe was to be given to support the Levites, those who cared for the temple and temple worship, the priests, because they didn't have property, they didn't have uh, a, an income by which to earn. They were taken care of through that money that was required of others to give to the temple. Now, some see those two passages as two different tithes, others see them as one. But it's not just those tithes that the scripture talks about under Mosaic law. Deuteronomy fourteen twenty-eight: a tithe was also to be given every third year to care for the needs of the poor that were among them. To care for the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, the alien, or one who had needs. So if we were to adopt, to adopt the Old Testament practice of giving, we should be giving a lot more than 10%. Some say I'm closer north of 25%. In addition to the giving the tithes that I just mentioned, there were several other offerings, special offerings, that were required under the Old Covenant. But it's interesting to note, as we get to the New Testament, that nowhere in the New Testament are believers commanded to tithe. In fact, tithing isn't even used as an illustration in the New Testament on giving. And, and think about it, too. Here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the most thorough passage in the New Testament on giving, not a word about tithing, is there? If there was any place it would be appropriate to do it, it would have been here. No, as believers under the new covenant, there's not a, a percentage or amount that you are required to give, that you are mandated by God to give. But this doesn't mean that giving is unimportant. It doesn't mean that, that there's really not a need to give in, or God's not as concerned about it as he used to be. We don't have a, a temple now and all those things, and, and Levites and all that, so it's not that important. Now actually the New Testament talks a lot about giving and it stresses it. But then the question is well then how much are we supposed to give? Should we give ourselves another? What is cheerful voluntary generous giving? What does that look like? What criteria should we use? Is a percentage okay or is that something legalistic that I'd be placing on myself? Well we do know that this takes careful thought. This isn't something that should be done whimsically or an emotional reaction. Because again, look at verse 7 where it says, As each one has purposed in his heart. That idea of purpose is to think about ahead of time. To predetermine. To consider carefully. This matter of giving is something that we need to give special attention to. And special thought to. Personally, I think giving a percentage is actually a, a practical help. Especially if we struggle in this area with discipline, it, it helps us be consistent. It helps not us not waver depending on our circumstances. But again, that's Third Timothy 3.3 3 stuff, okay? You know what I mean by that, right? This is just my personal opinion, but I, I think it's good to for, for us. We've looked at giving a percentage and then going from there, asking the Lord to help us be able to give more. Again, I, we're not locked to that percentage. I don't feel I'm in sin if I don't give that, but... It's a good place to start. It's a good place to start. Remember, too, the principle from Proverbs 3, 9, which says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. The principle there, the idea that give to the Lord first rather than from whatever's left over in the end. In addition to regular consistent giving to the local church, I would encourage you also have a plan. I think I mentioned this last week, but have a plan where you're setting some things aside, money, time um, to, to help others out as you become aware of needs. You know, even if it's just a, a little bit, or even if it's just, I'm going to set aside an hour a week to go and serve a need that I find out about, or I'm going to set this money aside consistently in my budget. And then when I find of a need and the Lord directs me in that way, I'll, I'll help care for that need. Again, these aren't requirements. These aren't things you have to do to be a generous giver. But they are some practical suggestions. Again, voluntary giving doesn't mean to just give in the moment. And what you feel like doing in the moment. And that's why, the, that's why we don't have these huge fundraisers. And try to pressure you and move you. And give you emotional tugs to give. Because we... We don't want you reacting in the moment. That would be counter to what Paul is saying here, to purpose this in your heart, to give it prayerful consideration, to to think about and give it time and and consider what God would have for you. And in that giving, that wonderful verse Paul says in verse 7, for God loves cheerful giver. There's a special affection he has for those who are giving eagerly. That word, Hilaros, means full of cheer, glad, happy. It's the Macedonians, as it said in in chapter 8, verse 2 and 3. They were eager to give. They had an abundance of joy in their hearts. And I think this verse indicates, if anything signals whether you have a generous heart or not, it's this. When you give, what is the manner or attitude in your heart as you do? Is there joy? Do you see a, a delight in yourself to give to the Lord's work? Do you see the time of stewardship that we set aside every week as just as meaningful an act of worship as our songs and prayers, time in His Word. You know, when I hear that verse taught, you know, for God loves a cheerful giver, I often hear it said also, if you don't have joy in your heart, then don't give at all. Keep your money in your pocket. And while I understand the point, we have to be very careful that the message there isn't, well, giving's really irrelevant or unimportant issue. If you don't feel like doing it, then don't worry about it. I would rather say this if you have no joy in giving, That's indicative of a very, very serious heart problem that needs your attention immediately. If there's no delight in serving the Lord in that way through your time, through your money, through your efforts, then work at the heart issue diligently until it gets fixed. Don't use a lack of cheerful giving as an excuse not to give and then not deal with it. That would contradict completely what Paul just said in verse 6, right? To not so sparingly. The solution to joyless giving isn't to turn around and then so sparingly, to give little or nothing. That's not the answer. I'm not too excited about it, so I'm just not going to do it. No, the solution is to fix the heart problem. And again, I think you'll find at the center of that heart problem is this attachment to money, to trusting in wealth over God, to discontentment. Sacrificial, joyful, eager, voluntary giving. It is certainly a high standard indeed. So how do we get to this place where we have this kind of giving, where there is a a joy and a cheer, where there is an eagerness, where there is a passion to serve others in this way? Well, that brings us to the third point here in verse 8, verses 8 through 11, the strength to give. You know, in the end, it really comes down to this. How do I view God, the God who's calling me to give? Do I view him as a taker or a giver? You see, if I I see God as a, a demanding God who only wants me to give because it's what I'm supposed to do, I have to, then I will sow sparingly. But if I see God as the generous God who he is, I'm encouraged to be a generous giver. Paul says again, God loves a cheerful giver. And then in verses 8 through 11, he shows us how God enables us to be that cheerful giver. Look at verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will multiply, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in everything for all the morality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God here in verse 8 Paul takes us back to where he started this whole journey on giving back in chapter 8 verse 1 on the grace of God and he talks about the fact that bountiful giving finds its roots in God's grace and notice how emphatic Paul is about this. Look at verse 8. I don't know if you saw how often he repeated. He says all grace, always having, all sufficiency in everything, every good deed. Five different times he uses the same root word that communicates this idea of all, every, always. On top of that, two times he speaks of God's abund- of the abundance of abounding. Paul's painting a picture here. He's painting a picture of a God who's engaged a God who is involved. A God who's not setting you up for failure. He said, you need to be a cheerful, eager giver. Now, let me see what you do with that. It's not God's attitude at all. He said, I want you to have a heart and passion for giving. And you know what? I'm going to enable you to do that. If you trust me. Do you trust me? Paul talks about the fact that God not only desires that we give in a bountiful way, but that he makes, he's the one who helps make it happen. And to prove the point, he then, in verses 9 and 10, he quotes from some Old Testament texts that talk about God's commitment to provide. Psalm 112, 9, Isaiah fifty five ten. These indicate when you give, God will make sure you're taken care of. Just like Jesus said in Luke 6, 38. You're familiar with this text. He says, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Right, that idea of God will put in your basket, He will fill it. Press it down, fill it some more until it's overflowing. Proverbs 11, verse 24 says, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There's one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. You see, God promises to abundantly bless those who give abundantly. Proverbs nineteen seventeen. He who is gracious, he who is gracious to a poor man, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Now, these passages present a dilemma. They present a couple of them actually. One is if, if God doesn't want us to depend on money, why is He holding out riches as a reward for giving? That seems to contradict or be counter to the idea of storing up earthly treasures, right? Jesus even warned us not to do that in Matthew 6. Why would God hold out the fact that I will bless you in this way as a means or an incentive? Another question that arises is why doesn't God take care of these needs himself? He is sovereign. He's all powerful. He's aware of these needs. He's a very rich God. He has lots of stuff. Why doesn't he just take care of it? Why does he put me or put us in this position? Well, God wants us to meet needs and he wants to meet them through through us. Turn to Deuteronomy five for a minute. Deuteronomy or fifteen, excuse me. Deuteronomy fifteen. Again, the scriptures are clear about God's desire for us to give. As I mentioned earlier, all over the New Testament in fact, there are several references to it. Jesus said in Luke 12:33, "Sell your possessions and give." Again in Luke 6:38, I just read, it says, "Give and it will be given to you." Or in Matthew 25 when Jesus talked about caring for the needs of the least of these, you've done it unto me, right? Or he commended the widow in Mark 12 for her sacrifice. Acts 2 and 4 describes the example of the early church and their sacrificial giving to one another. In fact, in Acts 4 it says they gave to the point that there was no needs within the church in Jerusalem at one point. And then we have in Deuteronomy 15, God's instruction to the Israelites that show his heart in regards to being generous. And as we read this passage, it should sound very familiar to you verse 7, chapter 15, it begins, "...if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, if any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, in it, excuse me, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near." And your eyes hostile towards your poor brother. And you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you. And it will be a sin to you. You shall generously give to him. And your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you. In all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you saying. You shall freely open your hand to your brother. To your needy and poor in your land. Sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians 9, doesn't it? This idea of being free and open-handed, of being generous, of not being grieved in your gift, and the fact that God will bless as you give. But the question still lingers, why? Why does God want us to do it? Why command here in Deuteronomy 15? Why, Why is it that He gives us this responsibility? Well, what's the second greatest commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself right how's that love to be expressed first john three sixteen says we know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren and not just i don't think he's talking about laying down your life only to death because of what he says next but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him how does the love of god abide in him Little children, let us not love with word or with, de- or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know this by this, that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before Him. See, John's saying here the evidence of a transformed heart, one in which the Holy Spirit, in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, that transformed heart will love. And one tangible expression of that love is to give. James 2.15, and speaking of what saving faith looked like, he said, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? James said, what's the point? You say you believe in God, you have faith in Him, and you don't care for the basic needs of those around you? This is how it works. God gives to us, not just for our needs, but also for the needs of others. I like how Calvin put it when he said this, for the richer any man is, the more abundant are his means of doing good to others. And that brings us to the other question that I brought up first. Why does God promise reward for when we are giving to others? Because that seems to go counter against what he said. Paul just said about covetousness in verse 5. Well, the answer to that actually overlaps with what we've just been talking about and our need to give. Because we need to understand what is God's purpose in that reward? What is his intent in blessing those who are a blessing? Is he saying, give to others and I'll, I'll make you so rich that you're not going to have any worries anymore, that you're not going to have any needs. You won't even need to depend on me anymore. You'll have so much money. Is that what God's saying? Obviously not, right? Now God desires to bless us for a much nobler purpose than to fill our pockets. 2 Corinthians 9, if you look back there with me. And see, as we look at, I want to point out again a few things in the verses 8 through 11. If you can find the reason God blesses those who give. In verse 8, he said, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, here's the reason, so that always having all sufficiency in everything You may have an abundance for every good deed. Verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. In verse 11, you will be enriched. You will be made wealthy, literally, and everything for all generosity. These are all saying essentially the same thing. Answer this question. Why then does God bless those who give? So they can give more. You see that? Again, verse 11, you will be enriched. You'll be made wealthy in all things for, and that word is for the purpose of giving, so that you would be even more generous. All liberality, all generosity, That it would overflow. God's saying, I I want to abundantly bless the cheerful and eager and sacrificial giver. Because you know what? I know that person will turn around and give it to somebody else. I can trust them with my resources. So many health and wealth preachers, they abuse these texts. They twist them inside out. They say, give money and God will give money back to you. Bless this ministry and you'll be blessed. God wants you to be rich. No, he doesn't. Not financially. He wants you to be rich in good deeds. He wants you to be rich in giving away those riches. He's not trying to build up your earthly treasure. He wants you to be building up your heavenly treasure. And earthly treasure can be used for that very thing. God wants to put money. He wants to put money in the hands of those who will advance the gospel. He wants to put money in the hands of those who will care for the needs of others. He wants to bless richly those who will bless and give to the local church. He wants to bless those who will advance his kingdom and care for the poor. God wants us to be rich, but only those who will use those riches for God's purposes. Hugh Latimer, who was martyred for his faith by Bloody Mary in 1555 said this regarding giving. God never gave a gift, but he sent occasion at one time or another to show it to God's glory. As if he sent riches, he sendeth poor men to be helped with it. In his book called Worldly Saints, Leland Ryken said this of the Puritans. He had done a, he'd studied many different aspects of the Puritans. It's a great book. And he talks about in the area of, of money, of possessions and giving. This is what he says. The key to everything the Puritans said on the topic of money was their conviction that money is a social good, not a private possession. Its main purpose is the welfare of everyone in society, not the personal pleasure of the person who happens to have control over it. Let me read that last line again. Its main purpose is the welfare of everyone in society, not the personal pleasure of the person who happens to have control over it. Give so you can be blessed to give and when you do it brings wonderful results look at the last few verses in chapter nine of second corinthians here we see the reason to give the reason to give for the ministry of this service verse 12 is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to god Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. These verses show the reason to give because they describe what generosity produces. I wish we had... A lot of time to look at these, but just briefly considering some of the outcomes here. There's one obvious outcome when we are generous givers. Needs are met fully. Real needs. People who are struggling right now as we are generous. Those people are blessed and they are able to be cared for. And more importantly, generous giving notice produces gratefulness to God. Right? You've experienced that when someone has been generous towards you. That encourage you not only to thank that person, but also the one who prompted that person to care for you. We see in verse 13 that they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession. Give to those in need, give to the gospel ministry, give to his church. And then you are fulfilling the purpose that God has made for you. And that is to glorify him and to move others to glorify him. And if that were not enough, notice what else generosity produces in verse 14. Paul describes here the recipients of their generosity as having a longing or a yearning for them as expressed in prayer. That this idea that when we are generous to one another, do you know one thing it produces? Not only does it take care of needs within the body, not only does it produce thankfulness to God and God getting glory, it also bonds the body together. In love and affection, that idea of yearning there is a a concern, a desire for. There's a bonding in love that takes place when we generously care for one another. These are magnificent reasons to give. God using the things we have, our, our time, our possessions, our money. Using those things to meet real needs. Using those things to bring Him glory. Using those things... To knit us together. And all this is to the end that his son, Jesus Christ, would be lifted up. And that's where Paul fitly concludes this whole discussion on giving. How could he not talk about giving and being generous and not mention the most generous, abounding, profound gift ever given in history? Appropriate doxology to end the matter of giving. Saying, thanks be to God for his unexplainable, inexpressible, just indescribable gift. What's he talking about there? Christ. He gave gave his son. He gave his son. He gave his son. So we might be forgiven. So that we turn from our sins and place our trust in him the sacrifice that he paid for on our behalf for our sins which we deserve punishment and hell for those thanks be to god for the inexpressible gift that he that jesus would become a man yeah we talk about this every time we get together sunday for a reason cuz that's all that matters We have nothing to be thankful for if it isn't for Christ. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We should always be grateful for that. Those words should never grow cold upon our lips. The thought of God's sacrificing his own son should never be something that...